This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. For a lot of people, especially those who are already working busy jobs, getting into college and graduating is still just a dream. Former Colorado Governor Roy Romer tried to solve that problem through more than 50 years in government. Now his son and granddaughter have taken up the cause, and they're hoping to make a profit from the effort. Goldie Bloomingstick, a reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education, recently sat down with the three generations of Romers to talk about their work. Goldie, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nathan. Glad to be here. You met with Roy Romer, his son Chris, and Chris's daughter, Rachel Romer Carlson. Are there common problems with higher education that they're each trying to solve nationally? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, uh, Governor Romer is um, a little bit at, not so involved directly anymore. He's more inv- involved as an advisor to his um, children and grandchildren. But I think the um, Chris and Rachel are very interested in particularly working students and the way help, helping working students access higher education in a way that, you know, works for them, works with, and also fits with their jobs. That's sort of their focus right now. So, so is that the, the tie that binds this family, you know, the, that educational for, for, for working families? How'd they end up with this really strong mutual interest? I think the tie that binds them, for all three of them, Governor Romer was very involved with the creation of something called Western Governors University. Um, I actually covered the first meeting of that back in Las Vegas in 1995. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to be a competency, it is still a competency-based organization, you know, that was designed to help students get education, Who would, those students who wouldn't necessarily be going to traditional colleges. I think uh, Chris Romer has been involved also with a lot of these efforts. He worked with a company called American Honors that was helping community college students kind of get make their way through higher education and, and transfer to four-year schools. And now Chris's daughter, Rachel, has been involved with this a new company called Guild, which works with employers to help students get through. So I would say, you know, it, all three of them have been focused on what was once called the non-traditional learner and is prou- now probably more accurately called the traditional learner. They're, they probably make up more of who goes to college these days than what you think about in the stereotypical, you know, 18-year-old, you know, loading up the minivan and in, heading off to school. Yeah. And you mentioned Rober helped create an online university for working adults, Western Governors University, has 70,000 students today. Uh, An online university at that time was pretty revolutionary. Uh, What was he trying to accomplish that his own state universities weren't doing at the time? Well, you know, when I I asked him about it a little bit, he said the thing that really struck him was he wanted this to be a competency-based program. He had owned a flight school at the time, and when you train pilots, you really make sure the pilots know what they're doing. Um, Obviously, you don't want to get up in an airplane with somebody who doesn't hasn't proven to you that they know how to fly. Um, He was asking at the time, he says, public universities in Colorado and probably around the country, he was also a national figure, could they demonstrate what they were doing, that that students were really learning? And then, and frankly, to some degree today, it's hard for colleges to demonstrate that. So he liked the idea of creating this sort of competency-based approach to college. Um, He teamed up with the governor of Utah, um, the then governor, Mike Levitt, who was, you know, in his day, a techie, um, which meant then he liked to play with email a lot. Um, it wasn't a techie the way we think about it today. Yeah. And Governor Levitt was interested in making sure it was sort of an online university that it used, that it had distance education. So there are these two, two governors, two different parties, two different ideas, and together they uh, galvanized the support to create Western governors. I should say it wasn't an immediate success, but um, it's sort of, you know, it is sort of the 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 model of a competency-based institution right now. And that means that the, the students need specific skills before they're able to graduate. Can you explain a bit more? Yeah, what it means is you, um, to, to graduate, you really, I mean, you don't even necessarily have to take the courses, but in some, you just have to really pass the tests and you have to sort of 
prove through a, a series of very specified competencies that you've um, that you have accomplished the the outlines of the course. That, you know, now to some degree, you might say grades do that now in traditional courses, yeah. but these are a little bit more specified competencies. And Roy Romer was governor of Colorado from 1986 to to 1998. Did he champion any causes in education during his tenure besides, uh, uh, you know, what he'd already been doing? Um, well, you, you, I wasn't in Colorado at the time, so I remember him more on the national stage. Sure. Um, he, he was standing up a lot for sort of standards and access as well. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I don't, uh, after he finished his governorship, um, years later, he, he was asked to head up the um, – Los Angeles County School School District, and he did that for six or seven years as well. You know, he was already seventy one years old when he started that job. Um, that's pretty impressive, I think, just to you know, to some for someone to take that position on at that age. <laughs> and he also uh, had a huge part in in legislation that started Metropolitan State College of Denver, and that school caters largely to non traditional students and working adults. Uh, and, and there's always been this interest, it seems, of of education for working adults. What brought that on? Um, you know, I, I think it's, I'm not really sure about for, for what it was for him. I think he just sort of looked around him and saw the kinds of people um, who weren't getting into the traditional system. I mean, today he, he mentioned to me um, the Romers own a, a bunch of John Deere dealerships. Mm. And he thinks a lot about, you know, the, the people who work in those John Deere dealerships. And many of them may not have, you know, the ones who are having to learn how to run those heavy equipment machines, which have a lot of computerization in them. They're, they're not easy machines to run. And, he, you know, some of those people are, you could start at a John Deere dealership, maybe at a low-level uh, position, but at some point, if you want to advance, in, even in the John Deere um, family, you're going to need some higher education. You're going to need some additional training to become a sort of a more skilled technician at John Deere or to become manager in the John Deere operation, which is an international global organization. So I think that's the kind of thing that has... Um, fueled his interest, continued to fuel his interest in this. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Goldie Blumenstick, a reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. She recently sat down with former Governor Roy Romer and his family. They've turned a passion for education into a business. Uh, Let's move on and talk about Roy Romer's son, Chris. He's 56 now. He served in the Colorado legislature, left to run unsuccessfully for mayor of Denver in 2011, and then he founded a private education company. What, What did that firm do? So they worked with community colleges to kind of to create honors programs on community college campuses and then also sort of transfer pathways so that those students, when they completed their community college experience, they could transfer to a four-year school. And it's called American Honors. Right. And it's still there. He, he, he left it recently to sort of consider other options, but American Honors is still operating. And we mentioned Chris's daughter, Rachel Romer Carlson, has founded a company called Guild. Uh, what exactly does that company do? So Guild, is, it works with um, employers. Uh, it sort of helps them maximize their, the money that they have for tuition assistance programs. And, but Guild sort of augments some of that with some of its own courses and primarily mentorship. A lot of, uh, it provides every student who takes a course through, a student, a, through the tuition discounting program, it provides them with a mentor who advises the student both on their, kind of their career path through the company and also on their higher education options out there. And so, so some of the companies are that they work with, Chipotle, uh, St. Luke's Hospital, uh, several here in Colorado, I, I've heard. Right. And they were just actually yesterday, or Tuesday, earlier this week, um, Guild and um, the Global Campus at Colorado State University were just chosen to be part of this new program that the Department of Education 
is funding, which will allow students to use their federal student aid money a little bit more directly towards the Guild projects. Rachel was a little girl when her grandfather was governor. In her late teens, when her dad was in the state legislature, uh, talking to her, how do you think that impacted what she does today? You know, it's pretty interesting. I think it had a huge impact. She described um, uh, a family that talks to each other a lot. She says she has her fa- she has everybody on speed dial. So she talks to her father you know, father all the time. She talks to her grandfather. She talks to other members of her family. I'm assuming her mother too, who was um, works in the library system in Colorado and Denver. Um, so she says she used this term that they're a family that relies on advice, and that's really sort of the fundamentals of her company. It's sort of a, as she put it. I mean, I think somewhat in a somewhat self-aware way, she said, you know, she was born on third base. She realized she had a lot of advantages in life, hmm. but she's trying to kind of create a, a system, a company with some technology and with some human involvement in it that helps other people kind of, uh, to, to coin the phrase, to leverage social capital. You know, we all have this notion of social capital out there. We, we learn how to maneuver our way through society from the things we learn from our, from our parents and our, um, and our friends. And if you don't necessarily grow up in an environment where going to college is part of your culture, you might not have that notion. So she's trying to provide that. So she, you know, she thinks that advice giving thing is really the, sort of the core of her company. And it was, as she was describing that at dinner, it was kind of funny because Governor, Governor Romer stopped and said he hadn't really realized that. He hadn't really thought about his family as a place where that is a family that's so reliant on advice to each other. And yeah. I'm not even so sure, you know, but it's really what I think animates um, what Rachel's trying to do with Guild. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of private companies selling products to improve all areas of education right now. What indicates that a company like Rachel's might actually succeed? Well, that's still to be seen, right? Yeah. Um, to be fair, I mean, there's all. I mean, one of the easiest measures is how much money they're raising, but that doesn't really prove anything about its effectiveness. I think the company's still very young. I think we'll we'll know in a few years when we see the out- outcomes of how students have done, or you know, our students who are getting a mentoring approach like the kind that Guild offers is, is are they really doing better in college or are they getting through are they doing better in their careers um, you know and you know unfortunately in, as with a lot of ed tech and a lot of you know these education startups they're attracting a lot of attention from a certain sector there has there's not a lot of accountability on how well these companies work yet um, there's not a lot of sort of checks in the system about that mm. and I think that's one of the places where everyone in higher education needs to do a lot better job of sort of looking at you know what do these companies do? You know, what do these companies promise and are they really yeah. pulling it off? One of the criticisms that's made of private companies involved in higher education reform is that they're diverting money and attention away from public universities. Shouldn't the focus be on improving those schools since they serve the majority of students and are more affordable than, say, private colleges? It's probably an argument to be made. I, I think in some cases, um, some of the models, both the model that Chris and Rachel were involved with, actually kind of were part partner with public universities. Mm. And I think they would, you know, you could ask them more directly, but I think they would make the case that what they try to do is make students' path through these institutions more um, more effective and more directed, maybe. Um, if they don't undermine these institutions in some ways, they sort of, you know, a lot of institutions, public ones particularly, have um, pretty hard times getting students graduated in four years or even six years. It's a, you know, getting through college isn't really easy, particularly if you're an adult working family and other, you know, struggling or a person in poverty. Um, And so I think some of these companies are designed to, in a way, ease some of those paths. Goldie, thanks for being here. Sure. Glad to do it.
Goldie Blumenstick is a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Her article about the Romers, When Education Innovation is the Family Business, A Dinner with the Romers, appeared August 7th. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Election years generally bring out a rash of concerns about our election system. Is it open enough? Is it secure enough? Is it running smoothly enough? And when it comes to those questions, Coloradans should feel some pride. In national rankings, our state tends to be close to the top for performance and participation. We asked CPR's Megan Verlee to look into what the state's doing to earn these good reviews, and she joins me now. Hello, Megan. Hey, Nathan. So last week, the Pew Charitable Trust came out with its election performance index for the last general election in 2014. It evaluates states in 17 different measures, and it ranked Colorado sixth in the nation. Why such high marks? Well, basically because Colorado scored well on nearly all of the the measures in that index. So voter registration, turnout, accessibility, transparency, all sorts of stuff. Uh, In fact, actually, the only areas where Colorado did not do well uh, were in uh, on rate of mail-in ballot return and the rate of those ballots accepted. Hmm. Those are categories that inherently penalize all-mail ballot states like ours. And if you take them out, which you can do on their little tool, Colorado ranks number one in the nation for election performance. So what are are the actual numbers? What does that mean in numbers? Well, let's look at uh, voter registration. Hmm. 86% of eligible adults in Colorado are registered to vote, and that is the highest registration rate in the nation. Now, there are a lot of things the state does to try and make it really easy for people to register. In fact, they just debuted something where you can text uh, a number and get the link to register back uh, in case you're like really not into Google or something. <laughs> um, but the people I talked with said that the real credit goes to the fact that we're a swing state. So election after election, campaigns have been coming here, interest groups, money has been coming here to try and get people registered. Uh, and then that spills over to us actually having a high turnout rate because those same groups and campaigns turn around and try and get people to turn their ballots in. Plus, being a swing state, having lots of noisy contested elections makes people want to vote. Now, could that change in the future? I think it might. That's going to be one interesting thing to watch. If Colorado does go blue in this election and seems to be the becoming a more, way, exactly, yeah. a reliably blue state, we'll get less attention and that might actually affect registration and turnout. So you say we had the third highest turnout rate in 2014. What was it? Uh, So this is where turnout's kind of a mixed bag. Um, Third highest in 2014, but we got that spot with just 54 percent of eligible Coloradans voting, so just over half. So that's the participation side of things. Uh, How is Colorado doing with how it actually runs its elections? That's always a concern people have. Well, according to Pew and some other national groups that look at this stuff pretty darn well, um, in recent years, election officials from other states, uh, most notably California, have been coming here to see what Colorado is doing to learn from our processes or or the state's processes. Uh, And I talked about this with Pam Anderson. She's the head of the Colorado County Clerks Association. I asked her, why does she think this state's getting so much attention. And she credited it to really having the right mindset. We've really led with a voter-centric approach. What does the voter prefer and how do we do it safely and securely? So some examples of that, uh, that text message thing I just mentioned about people uh, letting people register to vote, the fact that the state has online voter registration, which I did not realize not all states have at this point. Um, Also, there's a real all-of-the-above approach to voting. So everybody gets a mail ballot, but you can turn it in by mailing it back, by putting it in a drop box, by going to a countywide vote center, by tossing out that mail ballot and voting in person on a machine at a countywide vote center. So... um, 
And then once that ballot's in, Colorado has a system where you can actually track it online to make sure it's been received and counted and that there hasn't been a problem. And where do you do that? That is all on the Secretary of State's website. Um, And this actually, here's a little detail that I think really goes to that voter-centric approach. Secretary of State's website has a super confusing URL that nobody's going to memorize. So they went off and created a a related website where you just type in govotecolorado.com and it takes you to all of their official stuff that you need. So easier to advertise, easier to find. And if if that's not easy enough, we put a link at cprnews.org. What are the politics of these innovations? Have most of the changes come from one party or the other? I think it's notable that at least at the election administration level, this user-friendly focus has been very bipartisan. There's been partisan disagreement over what exactly to do. But it seems to the the innovations come from both parties. So, for instance, the concept of having a vote center, you can go to any of these in your county. You don't have to go to a little neighborhood precinct. That started uh, in Larimer County with a Republican county clerk. Uh, Online ballot tracking started in Jefferson County under a Republican clerk and Denver County under a Democratic clerk and, and has gone statewide. And even that move to all-mail ballots, it was a very partisan Democratic bill in the legislature, but it had bipartisan support from the county clerks. Do any of these moves to make elections more voter-friendly come at the expense of security, or do they cost more? Well, on the money front, it's it's hard to tell. The mm. Clerks Association says it's kind of a wash. Uh, for instance, sending a, a ballot to every active voter it costs a lot of money. Mm. But when you do that, you don't have to have all these precinct voting locations. You save a lot of money on staff and equipment. So especially in big urban counties, that's been a, a, a cost saving, basically. I think in the smaller rural counties, um, elections costs may have gone up by that shift to all but mail ballots. Um, and as for security, I think, you know, the main question I see out there around election time is if you're doing everything with mail ballots, how do you really know they were filled out by the person they were sent to? And the answer is that the state checks every ballot signature. And this is a little muddy this year because there have been fraud concerns around petition signatures for candidates and initiatives. The system for ballots is really different. They actually check every signature against one on file. And uh, Secretary of State Wayne Williams, to give me an example on this, says that uh, his daughter actually had her signature rejected a few years ago. When she got her driver's license, she had carefully put all of her letters in her name. And by the time she was a college student, it was a scrawl. Uh, And so she got a letter from my office saying, you did not have a matching signature. And she called me up and she said, Dad, you guys didn't count my ballot. And I looked at the two signatures and then commended my judges for properly disqualifying it. And under Colorado law, you have until eight days after to fix the issue by presenting some identification showing it actually was you. She did that and her vote was able to count. So that was Secretary of State Wayne Williams there. And the other thing he brought up when I was talking with him about security uh, is that the tabulation machines in Colorado that that actually count the ballots are not connected to the Internet in any way. So they could not be hacked from a remote location in case anyone out there is concerned about that. We've been talking about good stuff for for far too long. Uh, What are the criticisms of Colorado's election systems? What needs to improve? Well, there are always concerns out there. Uh, And one of the liveliest debates going on right now is about whether or not uh, the state should require people voting in person to show a photo ID. Now, that's a very small percentage of voters now that most people use their mail ballots. Um, But there are concerns that especially if somebody came in and registered on Election Day, they might not be at the address they gave if they use a non-photo type of ID. Um, There have been bills related to this session after session in the legislature brought by Republicans blocked by Democrats so far. 
So Republicans want a photo ID requirement. That's in keeping with their national platform. What do folks on the other side of the political spectrum want to see? Well, I put that question to Colorado Common Cause. They're a, a liberal open government group. And they would they have sort of two things on their wish list. One um, is they want to see the state cover the cost of postage to mail back mail ballots. Right now you have to find like a bunch of stamps if you yeah. actually want to put it in the mail. Um, but if the state picked up that cost, it'd be really expensive. So I don't see that coming anytime soon. Uh, the other thing that Common Cause wants to see, and and I think they have some allies in the legislature on this, would be for Colorado to start automatically registering people to vote when they get a driver's license. Right now, you get asked if you want to register to vote, and the vast uh, majority of our voter registrations do come through the DMV. But this would flip that policy so that you would be asked if you don't want to register. And the idea is that more people would because they just wouldn't opt out. Uh, Elena Nunez is the head of Colorado Common Cause. And she says this would build on work that the state's been doing, that you and I have been talking about, Nathan, to, to increase voter registration. I think Colorado's already made great progress in modernizing our list maintenance of who's on the voter rolls. But there's more we can do so that everyone who's eligible gets that mail ballot and has the opportunity to vote. I will say I am already hearing opposition to this idea, which means that this could be the next election policy fight in the legislature. This is all great information. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Nathan. Megan really covers politics and elections for CPR News. Find more of her reporting at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, there's a new voice at Mile High Stadium. We'll chat with the voice of the Broncos. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you're a fan of Colorado's many sports teams, the voice you're about to hear may sound familiar. Hello, good people of Pepsi Center, and welcome to Hockey Night in Colorado. It's a great day for hockey, isn't it? Right there, sit again. Sorry to interrupt you, Andy. Here's John Grant Jr. Shoots, scores! History has been made! Congratulations to John Grant Jr., now second all-time in NLL goal scoring. That's Connor McGahee revving up the crowd before a Colorado Avalanche hockey game and calling a goal for the Colorado Mammoth lacrosse team. McGahee's voice is about to become familiar even to casual sports fans. He is the new stadium announcer for the Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos. He'll call the game against the L.A. Rams August 27th at Sports Authority Field at Mile High. Connor, welcome. Thank you, Nathan, very much for having me. So this isn't just any football team you're (laughs) signing with. This is the Denver Broncos Super Bowl champs, and they won their their last Super Bowl. Is that intimidating to be joining such a large franchise? I mean, not necessarily. I I think I told uh, Michelle when we were talking about coming in today. Our producer, yeah. producer is uh is that you can't re- i i've just i've never been nervous about any gig that i did uh, he's even 20 years old doing my first avalanche game i said you don't have time to be to be nervous really but it's it's more an honor than anything yeah. you were born with the voice uh, but what kind of skills do you have to learn to call games at this level well i think it's uh, a lot of it is just about focus and the ability to uh, process a lot of information at once um which is things that, uh, which are things that I've never really struggled with, and yeah. and 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 I get some help too. But uh, for the most part, it's just uh, just a different way to watch a game than what people would be used to at, at home. And at least with the Avalanche, you're also doing doing television spots. You're up on the big screen there uh, as yeah. well. And, and yes. will that be happening at? at uh... Yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the program is a program called Avalanche Live, which is uh, basically a pregame and intermission show that uh, we started producing about. Six or seven years ago at Pepsi Center. So, so they'll be taking over to the Broncos as well? And, and um, a... they, they, they sort of uh, borrowed the idea a couple of years ago as well. They have uh, 
a uh, couple other hosts that are there that are doing that. So I could just get to sit upstairs and, uh, and watch a game, and announce the game. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what sets you apart then? What's your signature? You know, I don't really. Uh, again, I told Michelle uh, we were talking a couple of days ago that there's no real signature now. I think the the number one question from everybody has been, uh, will the incomplete stay? The uh, incomplete uh, pass. Oh, incomplete. Exactly right. And the great Alan Cass, who did Buffalo's football on Saturday and then Broncos on Sunday for 30 years. Uh, uh, Alan, if you're listening, very sorry. I don't know exactly when you began. But unbelievable man. And he started that when he was doing Broncos games back in the day. Um, and I took over for him at CU as well. And it's one thing that I don't think can go away. It has to stay. So. Yeah, you'll be doing that, bringing that back. Right. I I, the fans it, but would... the fans do it. I don't do anything. <laughs> I, I just don't say anything, and they fill in the blank. But it started by, nicely. of course, the announcer. He yeah, starts right. it. And, yeah. Right, exactly. So you're not going to be giving nicknames to any of the players no, on the no, PA no, no, system? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. You, you, no, no, Okay. No. There are times in games when something unexpected happens. Uh, let's say, for instance, that play by the Broncos' new quarterback, Mark Sanchez. Mm-hmm. You got to know this one when he was with the New York Jets. People are going to remember it as the, the, butt, the fumble, butt fumble, right? Uh, Sanchez collided with the rear end of his yes. teammate and fumbled the ball. It was recovered yep. by the New England Patriots right. for a touchdown. What happens with a play like that? Can you keep your composure? Do you just crack up But when you're on air? You know, as you very well know, as a broadcast professional, the on-off switch, or at least the cough button, is, <laughs> uh, is your best friend. But no, in instances like that, everyone at home is reacting differently than you are, because we just see it as fumble by Mark Sanchez, yeah. recovered by, and we're going the other direction. Yeah. But uh, that's where it's, it's a little more vanilla than it would be uh, at home. How did you get started in all of this? You know, when I was um, in high school, went to Summit High School in Breckenridge, mm-hmm. uh, in between Breckenridge and Frisco, Colorado, um, we uh, we got a high school hockey team. One of the wasn't one of the first, but it, when high school hockey was just getting going uh, in Colorado, and um, I wasn't playing, but I had volunteered to do the music and the announcing all at the same time. And so I did that there for two years and then went to DU and, and offered to do the same thing. I started announcing events there as a student at DU. And then in the fall of 2005, I uh, took over DU Hockey and also got uh, an invitation to um, to fill in at the Avalanche as well. And so it just was a, uh, a lucky snowball of events that uh, that sort of catapulted me forward here. So. Always sports, nothing, nothing. Um, yeah, I do it. I do a couple other things, okay. um, voiceovers for uh, some documentaries as well, um, and beyond to do some, a little bit of voice acting as well. Um, characters are always fun, but... Uh, and you're going to m- pull out to, to show me it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what the break is for, my friend. No, um, but mostly sports. Sports has been the, uh, uh, the main arena, forgive the pun, for... Um, for uh, what my work has been. You mentioned Alan Roach, uh, the yes. former Broncos announcer. Mm-hmm. It, it has been an announcer at Super Bowls, the Olympics. Yeah. How difficult it, difficult is it to follow him? It's impossible. It can't be done. Can't be done. The, the man is the best sports announcer in the world. Um, he's also a dear friend of mine. And uh, it will be impossible to fill those shoes. It can't be done. So that's why, for me, um, it, just, it doesn't bother me. It's just business as usual. And I think... That um, you don't try and be him. You just you go and do how do things how you know how to do them, and it, it'll be okay. I'm, but the the task is impossible; it can't be done. But have we're you spoken with him? Shot. Have, you, have yes. you had kind of a meeting or maybe a, a beer or something? Uh, and yeah. About so, this? At, but it was it was actually funny. I was uh, 
when I got the call from the Broncos, uh, officially I was getting on a bus to go to the airport to go to New York City with Colorado Rapids as I do their radio broadcasts. And um, so I got the call as I'm sitting on the bus there, and I texted him right away, and he's in Rio doing boxing right now. And so he was he was nice enough to text back. He sent three or four very long texts uh, that were very kind. So I haven't seen him in person yet because he's been uh, doing things far more important, but... Um, <laughs> But he's been more than gracious and more than supportive, and uh, he's been wonderful. Uh, this is going to be your first game coming up as, as the official voice of the Broncos, but not the first time you've actually called a game, right? No, I've done uh, about half a dozen in the past because, again, with as high profile as Alan Roach is. Um, uh, Needs a break. He, well, no, and he would do all the <laughs> NFL London games. Mm. So if uh, I think uh, Rams have been over there, Buccaneers, Raiders, you know, even the Broncos have been over there. Um, so he, every, any time he would go over and do an NFL London game, yeah. um, I would fill in there. And I've just been around the building for about uh, oh, almost ten years now. So you know where and the bathroom so, is. You know, yeah, I sure do. <laughs> Definitely know. Always know where your bathroom is at all times. <laughs> As we've mentioned, you've done a lot of sports. You've yeah. covered a lot of sports. What's your favorite one? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think, and football is one of those where, I mean, this is the United States of America, and football is king. And I, I really, really enjoy football, especially uh, with the the Buffs and the Denver Broncos. But I, I it's a, it's a one in one a situation with uh, with hockey and soccer. I would think uh, as yeah. far as my 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 two favorites. My dad was an All American in college for soccer, and so he got me going on that right away. And then we just uh, we've been hockey fans. Uh, for a long time, ever since early, late 80s, early 90s with DU. Uh, not so good at that point. They turned things around, but Denver Grizzlies, 1994 yeah. Tournament Cup champions, yeah. was at the first ever Avalanche game, October 6, 1995, at McNichols Arena. Avalanche beat the Red Wings 3-2. to two. So I think those would, if I had to answer, 1-1A one one with hockey and soccer. There you go. Well, you know, Alan Roach was in the chair when the Broncos won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Are they going to be that lucky again with you in the chair? Well, usually, uh, I have to say yes. Uh, th- <laughs> Are you th- contractually obligated to uh, say yes? I, I am. The <laughs> history would say, especially over the past five or six years, that wherever I go, teams are not that lucky. But uh, things have turned around this year uh, with the Colorado Rapids having the uh, nearly record-setting season that they're having. But I think that with the Broncos defense, it's even better than it was winning the Super Bowl a year ago. And uh, I don't think an offense falling off that much. I think that uh, the good streak in orange will continue. Connor, thanks for being here. Thank you, Nathan, very much. Connor McGahee is the new stadium announcer for the Denver Broncos. He'll call the Broncos' August 27th game against the Los Angeles Rams here in Denver. Bronco, Bronco, ride high on the NFL. Bronco, Bronco, the fans are there, you can hear me yell. Bronco, Bronco. Coming up, CPR classical music host Charlie Sampson stops by to discuss his 40-plus years on Colorado Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. For nearly half a century, Charlie Sampson has been the voice of classical music in Denver. Ahoy there, Colorado music fans. I'm Charlie Sampson. This is Colorado Spotlight, which is our program devoted to Colorado performances. Heard weeknights at 7 here on CPR classical. He signed on with KVOD in 1970 when it was a commercial station. He's been with CPR Classical since 1994 and has hosted Colorado Spotlight, which covers the state's classical scene. Charlie Sampson is about to retire. He hosts his final shift Saturday afternoon, and he's here to talk about his career. Charlie, welcome. Good to be here with you. Do you remember the first time someone told you you had a good radio voice? 
No. <laughs> but I had I used make to work with somebody. Story. Make up a story. No, somebody, uh, <laughs> a colleague of mine at the old station referred to me as the voice. It's sort of like the old shoe, like Bob Edwards was, yeah. you know, that you heard that and everything was going to be all right. And like a fool, I thought people were interested in the content of what I was saying, not the actual timbre of the instrument. And your love of classical has been lifelong. I understand a recording of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture was really the first classical record that grabbed your attention. A recording featuring conductor Morton Gould and, of course, some loud cannon blasts. It's bombastic. I mean, Charlie, what do you remember about hearing that for the first time? Well, remember, it was the early days of stereo. And so they made all these records that exploited the separation of the channels. And as you say, it's pure bombast, but it was thrilling to me. And, you know, the stereo sound effects. I mean, of course, you've been listening in mono for, for many, many years. There was a period when record companies would issue both formats mono or stereo you and i wasn't quite sure about this new thing at the time <laughs> this newfangled stereo yeah it prevailed <laughs> one of your uh, signature programs over the years has been the beethoven bash every new year's eve on cpr classical you play all nine symphonies all nine of them but you had that idea even before you started at kvod in 1970 uh, tell us about your high school beethoven parties well, I was a total geek, you know. <laughs> a friend of mine introduced me to all of the symphonies, and we actually would have these parties. My mother would bake a cake, and I think it was partially inspired by Schroeder in the Peanuts comic strip. Oh, Remember the piano he was playing, the pianist, yeah. you know, and Beethoven. And, uh, so I'd been doing this for some years, and it seemed only natural that when I came to work at the, the old KVOD in 1970, yeah. which was the 200th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. When you when you arrived. We would yeah. do stuff like that, and we continue to do it here at CPR. And it's been insanely po- popular. People people love it. There's something about it, going through all of them in order. Yeah. And how long, how long does it take to get through all seven of these? It's seven hours. Yeah. 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 So, and you know, we would end with the Ninth Symphony Ode to Joy in the old days, and now... They're very cleverly timing it so the actual singing of the Ode to Joy part occurs at midnight. Well, here's Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which you say is the climax of the Beethoven bash at midnight each New Year's Eve. Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the climax of the Beethoven Bash at midnight each New Year's Eve. We're speaking with CPR classical host Charlie Sampson, who retires this month. He's worked in Denver classical radio since 1970. What's changed the most about Colorado's classical music community since you started at KVOD 46 years ago? There's more of it. More of it. 
I'd say the percent of classical fans as a as a percentage of the total population is probably about flat. Flat, the you know, same. It's the same. Yeah. But what's amazing is these music schools keep cranking out these incredible players, and some of them get straight jobs, and others try to pursue a professional career. So what happens in a place like Denver is the overall level of playing just increases and, and elevates. It's much better, and there are more groups playing more interesting stuff. <laughs> it's amazing to me, the sheer breadth and depth of it all. What about this idea of, of everyone going to a central symphony, like going down downtown to, to listen to the symphony orchestra? That may be past. Because we've seen the arrival of d- venues in regions, you know, like the Arvada Center, mm-hmm. there's Lone Tree one, you know, there's one in Lakewood, where people go someplace in their area and don't go downtown as much. Uh, with the changing of, of classical music here in Colorado, uh, also how you have been on the radio has changed. I want to hear a clip. There's a clip of you from the old days. Let's listen to this. From late August through early October of 1776, Pietro Rosa's opera troupe visited Salzburg. The group's alto castrato was Francesco Fortini, for whom Mozart wrote this concert aria in September of 1776. The text derives from Arsace, an opera written for Padua a year before by one Michele Mortellari, a pupil of Nicola Piccini. The author of the text is unknown, though it may be Giovanni da Gamera, the librettist for Mozart's own Lucio Silla. The identical words were used by Johann Christian Bach in 1774 for the castrato Giusto Tenducci. The plot concerns the tragic love between Selene, the wife of the king, and Arsace, the king's chief of staff. And in this aria, Arsace bids farewell to her. I leave you, and this goodbye, whether it be the last, I know not. Ah, who can say, my adored one, if I shall ever see you again. Teresa Berganza is the mezzo here with the Vienna Chamber Orchestra. Georgie Fisher conducting the concert aria, K255. That is amazing. It's such a different tone that we, than we have today. It's almost like the records I listened to as a kid. This is the cymbal. This is the snare drum. This is the trumpet. A very authoritative uh, way you spoke to people on the radio. You're saying that was me now? <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. Who is that guy? Who is that man? That was actually a clip from a show I did in the old days called Kershaw Capers about all the Mozart there is. Yeah. In order by this crucial catalog, which is chronological, and how it's changed. You, you, of course, as broadcast has changed, your voices change, right? Well, our engineer Martin Skavish used to try to match. He said, "Don't, don't try to match old and new." <laughs> it sounds funny. <laughs> Do so you remember we, when there was where an actual switch where you you began became less of that and more of, of what we're so uh, know you now today? Yes, I think it was April 23rd of 1986. No, I have no idea. It's probably a gradual process, isn't right, it? Right, right. Some of the financial difficulties uh, with the Colorado Symphony have made headlines in recent years. Uh, are things better or worse for classical music in Colorado? You say things are going really well, but but think about that. Well, as the full-time professional orchestra in the state, the Colorado Symphony's had its share, and its predecessor, the Denver Symphony, had its share of yeah. problems. I'm not prepared to tell you what it is. Maybe it's in the water down there or something. Uh, but these are excellent players. I mean, guest conductors come in here and say, wow, here's a hidden treasure if ever there was one. They're, they're known as a quick study. They're a good Mozart orchestra. Um, they, they, they've been through it all and me with them. We were all unemployed together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but how do they devise a, a way to get more, more people in the seats to, to listen to this music? Well, they're trying all sorts of things, you know, with the uh, crossover stuff and, uh, you know, it's, it's the age old problem of 
weighing the war horses, you know, the masterworks, they still call it masterworks series with the new stuff, you know, we're in a new century now. We should be hearing what's happening. And according to Nielsen, the audience for CPR Classical is flat at at about 140,000 listeners a week. The median age of the classical listener is mid-60s. These are my people. (laughs) These are your people. But if a a high school student came to you and said they wanted to be a classical host, what would your advice be? I'd say go to college and become an English major first. <laughs> because it's a universal application being able to use the land. I'm half serious here. Yeah. Because that's what I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and it applies to all sorts of jobs. And as you well know, a part of being on the radio, especially in the news business, yeah. is being able to write a coherent sentence with that the verb true. and a noun and everything. But, but you know, if people say radio is dying, classical music may be dying, you're going to tell that student, eh, maybe try something else. Well, the the wonderful thing about public radio is that we commit to the format and then figure out how to pay for it. <laughs> so the commitment to the music, and in fact, all three of the streams here is genuine. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. And people seem to appreciate that and support it. Over the years, you've championed a lot of Colorado composers. Uh, one you've really supported is a choral composer named, and hopefully get the name right, Jean Berger. Yes. Who died in 2002. Right, Gene Berger. Yeah, I, I want to play some of his music. As he himself would say, never look for the complicated answer. Look for the simple one, Occam's razor, you know. And he was very proud of the fact that he made his living as a composer. He had some teaching jobs earlier, done quite a lot of traveling, you know. He went to the University of Heidelberg, and he was in Paris in a very significant time. He saw Ravel up in the gallery, you know, and he worked for Villa-Lobos in Brazil. But uh, he saw that from a practical point of view, it's the choral people that seem to be more adventurous in what they want. So he would always, uh, most of his stuff is, is for choruses.
was was there a moment when you decided to champion Colorado artists uh, the way you have on your show Colorado Spotlight since 2003? It's kind of thrust upon me. We were trying to be a national network then, and they ne- needed a local show, and I was it. And uh, sort of by conviction, but also the mission of the program was to focus on Colorado music, yeah. either visiting artists or the ones that live here. And the amazing thing over the years is just, as I say, the depth and breadth of that and how good it all is. What is it about Colorado classical music that, that so inspires people and keeps them coming back to it, do you think? The amazing thing to me is the groups are, I've, I've been around when they were formed, some of them, and they find an audience. They discover a mission within the overall rubric of classical music and they... They uh, appeal to them. They, of course, have played different venues and stuff. I, I don't think any of them would say they didn't need more money or more audience, but they keep doing it, don't they? I mean, they must do this. You have, the thing you have to understand about musicians is, as, as flippant as it may be to say, oh, they're just playing, um, what it takes to be able to play like that is incredible discipline. I want to move away from classical music for, for, for a moment. When you're not on the radio, one of your big activities is the Colorado Spelling Bee. Uh, you've been the pronouncer for almost 30 years. Are, are there words you couldn't spell yourself when, you, when you're on stage there? Absolutely. But remember, I see the words before they do, and I have the power to throw them out. <laughs> so you're just going and, through the list going, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, nope. no. I, I know. when Or... Uh, my guru then is the uh, mother of the now national pronouncer, the mm. spelling bee. And she would reject things just because, well, that's not a word that's worthy of even knowing. So we'd throw it out. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I never burdened myself with the things that were going to trip <laughs> me up. Uh, one of the more unusual things you've said over the years is the idea that Mozart was an alien. What? <laughs> well, I think Shakespeare was an alien, or whoever that is, and uh, Michelangelo was also an alien. But th- these are people whose art is so perfect. If you remember the scene in Amadeus where the emperor says, too many notes, Mozart? Yeah. Well, that actually happened. And Mozart says, just as many notes, your majesty, as are necessary. So you find, as with Bach and Mozart, there are no wasted notes. None. So it's a perfection that is, isn't human. It must come from some alien intervention in the gene pool is my only explanation for it. I want to play a piece here. Listen to this. This is a Cosi Fantuti. Tell us about that. Well, the opera is about uh, fiancé swapping. <laughs> and the two women, Fiordeligi and Dorabella, have been tricked by their boyfriends into believing that they're going off to war. And so this is the little trio they have with the cynical old bachelor who set up this bet. And we're saying, Suave, Silvento, may your winds be gentle in your voyage. It's gorgeous. And you pick this. This is your choice for the last song that we're going to hear as we go out of this. Yep. Let's listen. So what's next for you? What's coming on the horizon now that you're done here? 
I'm not at liberty to disclose that, Nathan. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations. Thanks for having me. Charlie Sampson hosts his last shift at CPR Classical Saturday from noon to 6. You can hear Charlie's final Colorado Spotlight, 7 p.m. Friday, August 19th, on CPR Classical. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.